Hi, this is Mark Brown, creator of Game Makers Toolkit. Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 41. With me this week is Mark Brown, creator of Game Makers Toolkit. Hello. Yeah, you do it much better than I do. <laughs> to get started, how did you decide to go into video-based game criticism? Well, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. So I, I started doing traditional games criticism on magazines and websites. And I'd always seen that, you know, YouTube was coming along and this was where a lot of the attention and the audience was going but it never quite felt right for me the way that I'd seen it, the sort of PewDiePie type stuff, the Let's Plays. None of that felt like the sort of thing I wanted to do. But then I started seeing these more these video essays cropping up, both in games and in other mediums like film and stuff, and started to think, ah, that kind of suits me a bit better. So that kind of gave me that chance to go in. The actual sort of real story of how I started is was just a bit stupid, which was that I was just idly one day thinking about a cool thing in the Zelda game, Skyward Sword, where the music is doing this interesting thing in the shops, and I wanted to tweet about it, but I couldn't find a good video uh, sort of illustrating it on YouTube, and I thought, well, I've got a, I've got a Wii and I've got a capture card. I could just chuck it together, and then it just started growing from there, this idea of uh, different games that had interesting adaptive soundtracks, and started thinking, oh, maybe that could be a, a sort of video essay type thing see how I felt about it and really enjoyed it and got a pretty good reaction. So I thought, I'll stick with this for a while. I noticed that in that your first video, it's, it's focused on like the idea and you have multiple games examples. But as you shift on to later videos, it's like you have a single idea. You focus a single example as like a schenectady of the entire idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I mix it up. So um, sometimes I, I've done a few since then that have been like, okay, for example, um, health. I talked about it in the in the context of Doom and Mario and all these different games. Yeah, sometimes I mix it up. Sometimes I'll focus on one specific game. And sometimes, like you say, I'll use like a game as kind of a, a way of talking about something more general, for example, with, with Doom, I wanted to talk about enemy design and unique enemy unit differentiation and stuff like that, and I'm using Doom to sort of help illustrate it and get my point across to people. But yeah, I try to sort of mix it up. Uh, why and how did you come to have your series focus on specific craft portions of video games? Most others that I've interviewed have used them as like general essays about the game themselves. It's just been something that I've always found the most fascinating about games is the design and the, the way they can use mechanics and systems and whatnot to give you a, a challenge or give you a certain experience or use it to tell a unique story. That's just always been the thing I found most interesting. And I think like my real interest in the sort of nuts and bolts and the craft of it, when Valve, when they used to actually make video games, they did the direct commentary in things like Portal and Left 4 Dead. And Listening to that stuff, it was absolutely fascinating to hear that you play these games and just think that they're just these sort of things thrown together and that you have a good time, but you find there's this enormous amount of clever craftsmanship put into it, guide you through the level or help you understand how a puzzle works or just to get you into a good sense of flow and stuff. And it was just like amazing to sort of peel back the curtain and see all this clever stuff going on. So that's kind of 
how I got into that side of it. Yeah, it's just sort of, I'm not particularly bothered about like stories and games, and there's enough people doing general reviews of games that it was, uh, this felt like something that I could uh, really focus on and uh, put all my time into that side of it. Do you have a background in game design or game studies that allows you to seize better than most people? No. Or are you just a very enthusiastic amateur? <laughs> well, my, my background in doing game reviews certainly helped. I think uh, anyone who does reviews for a living has to look at games in a slightly different way. You've got to try and explain to an audience who probably sometimes has never even played that game like what it is about it that makes you feel that way. So that's kind of my only real background is playing games to an obsessive degree to review them for different websites and magazines. So getting into this, what is your process for creating video? Well, the first thing and probably maybe like the most important thing is just an intense amount of research, which is playing games, obviously, but also reading interviews with developers. Uh, I like to watch GDC talks, a lot of those. Uh, sometimes I'll email the developers, especially for the, uh, the indie creators, and also kind of watching other videos and reading other articles people have done just to make sure there's no intense overlap. But it's just, yeah, I really try to immerse myself in the topic for maybe a, a week or more to really feel like I've got a really good grasp on it. Like, I want to feel like I've got enough in my brain that I could make like an hour-long video on the topic, but then crunch that down into just 10 minutes to sort of have it all killer, no filler, just all the good stuff. So once I've kind of got it all in my brain, it's the, I then need, then need to get it out onto a script. Um, and the main thing I'm thinking about with script really is thinking about structure and the flow of it. I really want to be able to kind of get the audience's attention to start and then lead them through as, as cleanly and as, as clear as possible through my argument and my ideas until I can get them hopefully right through to the end. So that's the, kind of what I'm always thinking about and sort of coming up with this overarching kind of like the core of what the video is about, like the one sort of idea I really want to share and making sure that everything is kind of connected to it and flowing back to that idea. Then I start obviously capturing footage, which happens throughout the whole process, record the audio, record the script once I'm happy with it and slap it all together in Adobe Premiere for like 10 hours of arduous editing. When it comes to picking out different games to record and choose, how do you do that part of the process? Or is that from the writing perspective that you know what you have to get? I'm pretty much always thinking about what I'm going to put on the screen as I say the words. So as I'm writing, I'm like, okay, I've got a list. I'm like, I want to talk about and sort of make some random uh, reference like ludonarrative dissonance or whatever. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have Uncharted or, or something or Bioshock in the background when I'm doing that. So it's all pretty much always in my brain when I'm doing it. So I don't have any like uh, surprises when I get to the editing stage. And I'm like, I have no idea what to put on the screen for this. And I, I think about also even things like the, the music and the, the way I'm going to sort of introduce the video, what sort of graphics I'm going to do. I want to have all that going in because it's, in my experience, it's absolutely horrible when I have no idea what I'm going to put behind the, the, uh, the words. And then I've also got to make sure I have the games, but for the most part, that's fine because I've got access to a lot of stuff. And for the few games I don't uh, have easy access to, I can just grab some stuff off YouTube. So it's like doing a mental storyboard, getting these essays in order? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I will actually have like a script where I've written down uh, little sort of notes for each bit of like a show Mario Galaxy here, show Duke Nukem here or whatever. But for the most part, yeah, it's just in my brain and it just I'm constantly thinking about it like that, yeah. And in the process of like playing a game, did you like suddenly realize something that edits portions of your argument or changes how you wish to present it? Yes, uh, definitely. And that's why I've kind of decided to sort of move the 
most of the video capture for part of the process up before the recording the audio for the script, because I had so many times where I'd record the audio, then go get the footage and be like, oh man, that would be much better way of putting it, or wow, I was really misremembering how that game worked. So uh, I didn't have to go back and like edit bits of the audio. So yeah, definitely putting uh, making sure I capture the footage first has been very useful. You've been quite prolific. I mean, you only started almost a little over two years to the day, mm. and you've got quite a substantial amount of videos out. What is like the, I guess, the process of churning through that much ability to create that much content so quickly? Yeah, that's a good question. Just, I kind of get a bit obsessed with whatever I'm working on at the moment, and and so I kind of have to get the video made, otherwise I'll go insane, just boring all my friends talking about whatever movement mechanic video game. So I, I just am like focused on each video, but then the video's done, and like, what should I do in my life now? I'll go work on another video which is fine. I need to sort of slow down a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, it's just really uh, just about focusing my, myself on the videos. But I mean, not to the detriment of everything else. I'm still playing lots of video games and doing other things. And I've also been very lucky with my with my Patreon to be able to significantly reduce my hours at my actual job. So I'm now just sort of part-time at my job. So I focus a lot more time on, on the videos. Speaking of that, what do you feel that video adds to game criticism? Well, video games are obviously a bit video, a bit visual, a bit audio, and a bit a lot interactive. So having being able to have the video and the audio bits kind of at least brings the audience a bit closer to actually experiencing what I'm experiencing, and I can you use words to sort of describe the interactivity stuff. So it's kind of a bit like a, a shortcut to uh, helping people there. And like the other thing I realised uh, throughout is that I can just use video in place of actually saying stuff. I remember when I did a video about Half-Life, I had a bit where I was sort of describing what would happen when this crow flew up and gets attacked by this enemy and thought, well, actually, I don't need to say that. I can just show people. But yeah, it's a good, it just sort of illustrates my point in a, a much easier way than if I just had to speak it out loud or, or sorry, write it down for, you know, someone to read. So that's helpful. Yeah. And it, I mean, generally, people just seem to be gravitating towards watching videos for whatever reason. So that also helps that, you know, if, if I write these as an articles, I'm just not going to get as many people reading them. So there's something about the visual medium or the way that it just someone reads it to you in your headphones, whatever, that people are really liking about YouTube. So that also helps as well. But, yeah, I think generally I much prefer now making videos to writing stuff just because to be able to get my points across easier by using either actual videos from the game or sort of using motion graphics to, to represent certain things. It also changes the pace that you deliver that you deliver at. I've noticed, especially in your videos, you have a, a certain pacing between when you're speaking and when you stop to let, I guess, the video pick up on that thought, kind of like footnote. Yeah, I think a lot about pacing. I think a lot about making sure the the viewer kind of has a bit of a time to sort of think and to use them almost like um, like paragraphs in an article of like, okay, here's like a cut in the sound and in the video just to sort of just sort of say, okay, we're moving on to a slightly different point now and we're going to, you know, transition. So put that last bit out of your brain and we're going to move into something new. In terms of footnotes, yeah, probably you might be uh, smarter than me with that because I, I, I don't know. Well, it's like to go back to your first video for an example, you have like mm -hmm. on the dynamic soundbacks where you describe it, then you stop and you just let see the dynamic play out. Sure, yeah, right. Yes, exactly. So using it as a chance to sort of... Uh, yeah, to illustrate what I've just said, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I guess, apart from, like, the normal Game Maker's Toolkit video, you now have a... You started, at some point, a, a couple months ago, a sub-series on The Legend of Zelda. Hmm. 
Yes, so I've been always keen to make a video about dungeon design in the Zelda games because I think they have absolutely fascinating style of level design that we don't really see so much in games these days. It was kind of a, a style of level design that was quite popular in the 90s. It's like Resident Evil and the original Doomba. It's something that hasn't that sort of went away, but Zelda has kind of kept it going. But I never, I wanted to do a video, but realized that I didn't know, I needed to play some Zelda games to kind of see how they're put together and to see what sort of stuff Nintendo's doing to make these levels so interesting and to stop you getting lost and to make them fun and stuff. But I didn't know where to start and realized that ultimately I just need to play like pretty much all of them and decided instead of just working away in the background for several months and then suddenly putting out this video with like a hundred hours of research behind it, I might as well let people in on that and show them uh, what I've been up to, yeah. And each look at the Zelda dungeon has gotten more and more complex, I guess, now that you build up a background on them. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of fascinating for me because when I do an episode of Game Maker's Toolkits, I feel like I have put as much research as humanly possible into it, and it's kind of my final take on the subject, hopefully, and I'm sort of very confident to put it out there. But with the Zelda dungeons, I'm learning so much as I go, and with each game, my understanding is building and yes, as you say, it's also becoming a lot more complex. And hopefully at the end, I'll be able to like crunch it down in the way I would normally do with a video to sort of get it in a way that it's uh, a bit more understandable for people. That is something I'm a bit worried about, that if you just only see this video on, on uh, YouTube and you're like, oh, I've played Twilight Princess, and you go into it and I'm drawing graphs and I'm talking about all this stuff that you don't understand, uh, it's very much something where I hope people are sort of following along from video to video. And you've actually created those graphs in visual form for the videos. Yeah, it was something where I was basically doodling around, trying to get into my own understanding of like, okay, how do they work? Where, does, where How do they work with like items and keys and locks and barriers and all this sort of stuff? And I thought, okay, this is like a simple dungeon. I sort of scribbled it out and realized that that's actually quite a nice way of representing the information. And I could use it for dungeons in basically all of the games. And then uh, got very excited about that and bored a lot of people by talking about diagrams and stuff, but hopefully uh, some people enjoy them also. In doing them, have you come across anything surprising about the dungeons, or have you learned anything new? Well, for me at least, it's new. I don't know, like, but I, I did do like a lot of uh, looking online to see what people have written about Zelda dungeons, and couldn't find much outside of like oh, which ones look cool or which ones are hard. And there was like one guy had done some research on the very first Zelda game, but it didn't seem like anyone had really put a lot of time into sort of figuring out just the nuts and bolts of of how do you lay these things out but the other interesting things i've been finding is how the dungeon designs have changed over time so sort of how nintendo kind of figured out the formula that they're going to use for the whole of the series kind of by the fourth game by the game boy game they've really sort of set in stone okay this is how we're going to do it and now as i'm moving into some of the more modern games from like wind waker onwards how they're making the dungeons a bit more accessible to other people, to all sorts of different gamers, and then sort of reducing some of the complexity, which is um, something that is kind of a bone of contention with some of my audience who don't like being told that, like, the Wind Waker maybe isn't super complex. And, you know, there's an argument to be had about accessibility and getting players to be able to understand the game and enjoy it versus making it hard and complex for the hardcore gamers like me who've been playing Zelda for years. So that's sort of like a back and forth that I'm having with the audience. And so for the next video I'm going to do on the Minish Cap, I hope to sort of start by addressing the 
the comments I got on the last video, which make it even more difficult for people to drop in for the first time. But I think it's important to sort of get everyone on the same page and be able to explain where I'm coming from, because it seems like not everyone agrees with me, which is fine. Like Zelda, dun the dungeons are interesting thanks to their complexity of their design and whatnot. I find that really interesting that, that for a series as popular as Zelda, that in your research you didn't find anyone who like dug into how they're made. Yeah, I found like a, just a few bits here and there. It was like one guy had done a bit on the Ocarina of Time dungeons, but it's just nothing that I could really use as like a, a jumping off point or as a help or anything. It was it was quite yeah, like I say, it was quite strange because it is very popular, and these dungeons give us like. There's such a different type of level design that we see in a lot of games, that it, and maybe that the you know indie developers today or other developers today aren't using this because there aren't a lot of games out there to sort of learn from. Um, so hopefully, maybe I mean I've had a few people telling me that wow, this is kind of cool, and I could maybe use this for like um, procedurally generated dungeons or handmade dungeons, kind of using the the things I've I found out as part of my research. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. And in, along that line, I just got to thinking of your Super Mario Maker videos mm. and how that in examining how you create a Mario level that you're able to then turn that to make a quality Mario Maker level. Yeah, that was that's a, like one of my favorite videos I've done because it really kind of encapsulates what I hope Game Maker's Toolkit can be for developers. I, I, I keep having this problem where people say, I'm not a developer, and I really like your videos. I'm like, they're not just for developers, they're for everybody. But I do hope they're useful for developers. And the idea is that I can, like, look at an existing game. This isn't, like, me coming up with stuff. I'm just going to go look at Mario or Half-Life or whatever, see what that game does, kind of take just the ideas and apply them. Uh, so hopefully indie developers can kind of apply them to their own games. But that video kind of showed the whole process of playing Mario getting the ideas from it, seeing the sort of uh, processes and the layouts that Nintendo's using, and then applied them in the video to a, a Mario Maker level. And then I asked my audience to kind of share the videos they had made, outside the levels they had made. And um, it was quite strange to get people giving me levels back where it quite clearly had been using the things I had discussed in the video. And it was a really weird and slightly emotional experience to kind of see people really understanding what I talked about and agreed that it was a good idea and to put it into practice in their own way. It was that kind of uh, proud teacher moment, which is weird because I'm not a game designer or anything and I don't, I, I try not to have any uh, pretensions that I, I, I have any skills to help people, but seeing that it does help people is really cool. It, it's it's just kind of impressive that I mean Mario One One is probably the most analyzed single portion of any game ever, mm. and yet it's usually focused on like the first ten seconds, that portioning section that teaches you how to play the game, and then the rest of the level is just so basic that you don't see a theme emerging. Mm. You just picked one from a later Mario in the middle of the game, and you're able to say, okay, this level has a theme, and you can see how they build on it and they adapt it throughout the level. And then it doesn't really come back because you came up with this one idea. Now you move on to the next idea. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's you see a lot of videos, level design videos, 
that are looking at the first level in a game and and saying, wow, it's cool how the game teaches you how to play it in the level design, which is cool. But then very few of them say, and here's a later level that now you know how to play the game. How do we actually make a fun level that's not teaching you stuff, but is actually just a, a fun level? And I think that the, the sort of patient zero of this is the quite excellent video from Ego Raptor, the uh, Mega Man X video that pretty much everyone has seen, where he, he's showing how Mega Man X is teaching you stuff in the first level, and it's fascinating. It's got like 7 million views, and everyone loves it. I think everyone's... And I did my own version of that with the Half-Life 2 episode, but everyone's basically just uh, copying uh, his video with that. Who do you feel that you're making the videos for? Because you mentioned, like, you hope that game designers of all sorts can get something from them, but this is is it to educate the general public into being... I guess, more appreciative of the small things in their games? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a mix of both. I want to be able to get people thinking a bit more when they're playing games about the design, thinking a bit more beyond just, uh, you know, does this game have cool graphics or is the story interesting? But, like, what is what is the game doing with its mechanics? How is it teaching me things? What's the level design like? Getting them thinking a bit more about that, thinking a bit more critically about the games they're playing and then hopefully giving people kind of the tool set to, and the sort of the lenses with which to look at the games they're playing in a, in a slightly different light. But I'm always kind of at the back of my mind thinking about designers, young designers, student designers, indie designers who might need, who want, might want some help with stuff. Um, and I've been very lucky to have heard from a lot of indie, well, quite a few indie developers and, and student developers and stuff who have said it's been been helpful and sent me links to their games and whatnot. I was also very fortunate to be able to go to a university in London to do like a uh, help out with a game jam with some students and and things like that. So it's kind of yeah a bit of both. I'm I'm trying to just uh, get my thoughts out there about what uh, what I think is cool in game design and if anyone wants to listen, that's that's rad. Looking over your videos, I see that uh, many of them are sort of examining canonically quote-unquote good games mm -hmm. have you ever gotten anything played a bad game and gotten anything craft wise out of that yes yeah, so i uh, there's like a, two of my videos i've called them deep dives so there's mirror's edge catalyst and Star Fox zero neither of which are bad games by any stretch of the imagination but i've sort of was critical about them in the videos um and i think that's important you get a lot of uh, videos of this style where it's all very positive and it's all here's why you love that thing you love which is uh, a cool thing to do and it gets you lots of uh, retweets and everything but it's I think it's very important like you say to play the not so good stuff and see what I can learn from it or what everyone can learn from it it's something that I don't get a chance these much these days to play bad games because I don't I used to rent games a lot back in the sort of Xbox 360 generation, and I'd get some right stinkers and would sort of be able to use those as part of my understanding of how game, good games work, you know, to help elevate the, uh, the good games to show you what's, uh, what they're doing right, the bad games are doing wrong. So I've now I've sort of realized that and I've now started renting games again, but there's so much good stuff coming out, and you don't get a lot of, like, terrible games these days unless you're, like, on Steam Greenlight or something. So I... Uh, but yes, I do try to mix it in with a little bit of critical stuff, even though it doesn't always traffic as well and people get a little bit angry sometimes in the comments, but that's okay because uh, it's so important to uh, to see the, 
the rough with the smooth. And on a similar tack, most of these are lessons that you can apply to many games, and you're just using one as an example. Have you ever found anything that you feel is unique to that game and hasn't been proliferated among many titles? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the second video I did was about a game called Toki Tori 2, which was sort of a game that was using the Metroid uh, sort of structure for the game, but instead of getting power-ups to get through barriers, you were learning um, how the game works in the same way that you'd sort of uh, use a tutorial, you'd get this new information, and you'd be like, oh, now I know how to bypass that enemy. You're not actually getting anything new, but you're just understanding the world a bit better. That's something I haven't seen in a lot of games. I mean, when I started the series, one of the ideas that I kind of had for the overarching theme of the show was to find stuff in games that not a lot of other games were doing, so to sort of put it in the designer's toolkit, that was kind of sort of where the name came from, to be like, okay, here's like a cool thing that you could possibly use in your game, because it's like this sort of hidden gem of an idea. But um, I, for one, I couldn't really find <laughs> loads of them. But then also I just realised that it was more interesting to, to be a bit more general and to come up with useful stuff that is um, for lots of different games and lots of different genres, I guess. The, uh, I did do one video on point-and-click adventures a while back. That's quite a very specific yeah, very specific oh, yes. genre where the lessons, you probably don't want to put them in other games because it's just uh, a weird genre of games. But, uh, yeah, that was a fun one. Yes, I, I was going to bring that up because I'm somewhat of a adventure game specialist. Mm-hmm. And seeing it, it's like, okay, this is broad strokes, and it does, and there's, a, like, a lot more on top of it, especially in, I guess, modern. You focus mostly on, like, the LucasArts era as examples. Mm. And I'm, I'm just thinking, it says, yeah, but nowadays those would be super frustrating and super bad, even like the classics, because <laughs> they had so many problems that many games today are trying to correct, or at least find in-design solutions to minimize their effect. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, yes, uh, uh, mostly because I <laughs> don't play a lot of point-click adventures these days. Uh, that was kind of when I was mostly playing them was back in the sort of 90s. Yeah. Uh, there isn't so much to say because on the broad strokes, yeah, I agree with this. Signpost your and have have basic goals. Have a lot of good good in-game hint systems through the conversations and such. Yes, this is all basic understanding knowledge, but there is more to it now. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, so I think the main ones that sort of sparked me to do that um, were the, the sort of point clicks I'm playing on, like iOS, where. They're not being made by the this, this, the, the best point-click adventure creators around. Like, you know, watch your iGames. They're pretty good at their stuff nowadays. But playing some, like, slightly more shocking stuff on mobile that was uh, spurring me into action. To try and say, this is what you're doing wrong. Please stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. It's such a weird genre that I, I kind of, thinking back on it now, it's almost a strange genre for me to have focused on just because it's such so different from a lot of traditional game design. You wouldn't make puzzles like that in pretty much any other game just because it's just strange. But, uh, they're, they're, yeah, it's fun. It was, you know, they're such a big part of my childhood. It felt important to at least uh, talk about them at some point. I'm not going to drive this one into the ground, even though I could. <laughs> but So moving on, have you ever had an idea that you haven't, yet found a great example to illustrate it? 
Uh, I don't think so because it's. I generally work the other way around. I'm looking. I'm playing the games and looking at them with a, with a critical eye, and they're sort of telling me what's interesting about them, and then kind of going from there. Mostly because I don't have the background in design to sort of know what I'm talking about, basically. Where so like a series like Extra Credits, where they are actually written by a real game designer, they can kind of do that with uh, where they sort of know the the actual the basics and the academic stuff, and they can go from there. But for me, I'm too much of a, a moron, so I uh, get it from the games themselves, mostly. So. You feel that your presentation is like your strongest asset in that case? Uh, maybe. I mean, people have said that I have a good talent to be able to to play the games with the critical eye and to you know to pick out what's interesting. I mean, like you know, anyone can play. Uh, I don't know, like Doom or something, and be like, that's a cool game. I like that. But you know, there's a bit of a talent involved to be able to see what's the most interesting thing about that game and what it's doing different. But yeah, presentation is always good because. But but I'm all, with my presentation. I'm I try not to be like flashy and nice editing just for the sake of it. I want my videos to look nice, but I'm not going to put like too much time into crazy transitions and stuff. But I use it more to help illustrate my point. So for example, in the video about Spelunky, I use like motion graphics on the on the screen to show how the level is being put together by the algorithm to like, yeah, illustrate my point and to, to help people get a better understanding of what I'm saying. Do you feel that having a British voice gives you any leg up in, in this in this field? It did for a while uh, until we voted uh, for Brexit, where the national intelligence went down significantly in the world. So that was uh, that was embarrassing. People have said they like my voice, which is nice because I've always been self-conscious about my voice. So that's always cool. But there's a few British uh, games critics, and yeah, they all sound pretty smart. So maybe maybe there's something in it. <laughs> but but actually, when I started, I was mimicking an American, the creator of the podcast 99% Invisible. He's called Roman Mars, which is an insanely cool name, and he's got this like deep American accent. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. That's what I want on my video. So I tried to do that, and I sounded a bit a bit foolish. So I've mostly just done my own voice now. <laughs> yes, I, I do know that podcast. That's that's an interesting inspiration. Yeah. Actually, no, it makes perfect sense, though, if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, so it, it was kind of a mix of that and uh, the, the video series that pretty much everyone on YouTube is inspired by, which is Every Frame of Painting. That was so cool because I watched, you know, you see a lot of movie criticism and analysis and video essays, and it's all on what most people talk about when they talk about movies, the stories and the characters and the dialogue and all that. But here's a guy telling you like the, about the craft of making movies and the, the editing and the camera angles and all this. And it's like, wow, this is so cool. And it's sort of revealing this sort of secret layer behind the movies you love. And I'm like, I could do that for video games. And also he was a guy who was incredibly successful despite never showing himself on camera. I still don't know what he looks like. Um, I always assumed, thanks to the Let's Players, that you had to be on camera at all times and you had to create that uh, human relationship with the audience and that always just terrified me um so to know i could just do it from behind a microphone was pretty was pretty cool did you say did you say that man's name tony uh Zhu, i think his name is i probably mispronounced that uh from uh every frame of painting 
Yes, I follow it. I always for, I, I remember his name, but I always forget his channel's name. Right, yeah. I, I For a while, I thought about calling my thing every game a painting, but I thought I might be a bit on the nose. <laughs> I, I think you made the right, right call here. <laughs> I mean, I don't really like the name of my channel, but I'm kind of stuck with it. It's a, it's a bit clunky. Isn't the name of your channel Mark Brown? That's true, yeah. Well, that's because that's for the boring reason of uh, my YouTube channel is also just my email address. So uh, when I just email people about other things, it's coming from Game Makers Toolkit. That was a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else about your channel that you feel we should know or that I haven't touched upon yet? Uh, let's think. No, I think that's kind of it. That's kind of that's kind of me. We could talk maybe about I don't know plans for the future. Maybe go ahead. Uh, my plans for the future uh, with uh, Game Makers Toolkit. Well, something I've wanted to do for a while is is just be a bit more timely with stuff. I'm pretty useless at that. For example, Bioshock Remake just came out, and everyone was ch- sharing their their Bioshock hot takes and their articles and their uh, reminiscent pieces. And then, like three weeks later, I'm like, I've got a I've got a thing on Bioshock also. Everyone had kind of moved on. So using like the calendar to help me understand to know what uh, topics to hit to get in the zeitgeist of new stuff. I, I don't uh, want to do too much stuff where it's like, oh, Dishonored 2's come out. I'm going to do a video on Dishonored 2 because I don't want to rush. I'm not crazy about like hype culture surrounding games where everyone's just like crazy about the newest game that just came out. But I might want to do something like my immersive sim video I did earlier in the year, kind of get it out there just as everyone's talking about a new immersive sim so I could do that better and something also I'd like to do a bit more is to get uh, to talk more to actual developers and designers and to get them either their quotes or maybe on the microphone to uh, get involved with the video also because there's only so much sort of knowledge I can get without bending their ear and asking them how they came up with with clever stuff so I guess that comes down to the uh, final question here oh what is your favorite video game of all time Oh, um, I'm going to go with, ooh, I'm going to go with <laughs> The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. It's probably my favorite video game. It is both very nostalgic for me, it's something I played very young, but it's something whenever I have revisited, I've realized that it's not just a nostalgic thing, but it's actually a really smartly made game. And it's just brilliant that you get this tiny little piece of, it's a little piece of plastic, it's very small, and you put it in this big brick and then you'll transport it to this enormous world of of weird characters and these underground dungeons and stuff. It's just this, like, real, it really captures, like, the magic of video games for me. It's, it's brilliant. All right. Well, tell people where they can find your stuff and where they can support you. Just search uh, Game Makers Toolkit on YouTube or Google, I guess, to find it, because I have a dumb YouTube channel name. And I'm on Patreon also, uh, which, yeah, just Google it. You'll find it. And with us as well, you can find our stuff at criticaldistance.com, everything including this podcast. And if you like this podcast and if you would be so kind, please leave us a rating on iTunes and review us. If you, We really appreciate any help you can do in there. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash critdistance, and every little bit helps. So, and if you can't support us, please share it around, and hopefully that will get us what we need. Thank you, Mr. Brown, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a blast.